This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about biogeochemical cycling in our Moab desert. It's a good show. Stay with us. One thing that um, a lot of people don't realize is that if you go to a soil that doesn't look like it has, like even just a patch of bare soil, and you stick uh, a chamber over it, you will see carbon dioxide coming out of that soil. And that's because the soil is alive and there are tons of microbes that are living down there. Today on Science Moab, we explore what biogeochemistry means and how it relates to our desert around Moab with Dr. Anthony Derazinardi. Dr. Derazinardi is an assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. He has worked around Moab studying carbon and how it cycles through the ecosystem and specifically through the soils. Today, we talk about the different kinds of carbon that exist in an ecosystem and how it is transformed and moved through the carbon cycle. We explore deserts and their role in carbon release and carbon storage in relation to global carbon cycles. And we also look at how land use changes can alter the amount of carbon that the desert can hold. So you're a biogeochemist. I would describe myself that way, yes. I was wondering if you could tell me what that is. Sure. Um, I think it's a scientist who's interested in following the cycles of elements as sort of an organizing, it's kind of abstract, but it's like an organizing principle for understanding uh, ecosystems overall. And so, you know, elements of uh, primary biological interest, of course, are things like carbon, hydrogen, phosphorus, um, and, you know, a few other elements as well. But ultimately, it is a chemical approach, and I think that's where the element, the elements that you're interested in are coming in, things like carbon or nitrogen, straight off the periodic table, which is a very chemistry-oriented um, type of a concept. Um, but then on top of that, you're adding um, the bio and the geo, and those are kind of the, the different processes that help um, to move around those chemical elements. So you might have biotic features like organisms that are moving or transforming um, it, the elements as part of different compounds. Um, and then there are geologic features um, as well. And sometimes people will break down uh, the entire Earth system into different spheres. So people will talk about the biosphere, uh, the geosphere, um, and then the geosphere kind of gets broken into things like the cryosphere, which is ice, hydrosphere, which is water, um, uh, the lithosphere, which is rocks and things like that, um, etc. So you can kind of, you know, break the Earth system apart into these different elements. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of come at the questions. And so uh, biogeochemistry is kind of one lens for, for doing that. You talked about the carbon atom very briefly in your description. I was wondering if you could tell me about the different forms um, that carbon takes within an ecosystem. 
Well, I mean, I think most people know that life is carbon-based. So, you know, by that logic, there are an innumerable number of compounds that carbon can be part of, particularly when it's in a, a biotic or an organic form. Um, but there's also some particularly um, important forms of carbon that crop up over and over again. I think one that most people know about is carbon dioxide. And so uh, the atmosphere has, you know, now a little bit upwards of 400 parts per million carbon dioxide. And through the, the very basic processes of life, uh, photosynthesis on the one hand brings that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere uh, into organisms, usually plants or phytoplankton if you're in an aquatic system. And then uh, ultimately that gets converted to things like sugars and all of the other macromolecules that make up uh, organisms, proteins, um, DNA, lipids, etc. So you have these different um, macromolecules. Um, originally, the photosynthesis will turn into sugar, and then the sugar can be the sugar can be used as sort of a backbone to make all these other things. Um, ultimately, it gets sent back to the atmosphere through the process of cellular respiration. So every single living cell um, has mitochondria in it that will um, break down carbon compounds for energy. And the, ultimately, the, uh, at the end of that process, the CO2 goes back to the atmosphere. So that's kind of some of the major players. You have your carbon dioxide is really important. That's the inorganic form that's floating around. Um, plants can do this neat trick where they turn it into the organic form via photosynthesis and then it gets converted into the huge, vast variety of organic compounds that make up living organisms. Ultimately, it will then be respired or you know, broken down and turned back into CO2. And what you're describing is a cycle? Yeah, it's definitely a cycle, absolutely. Yeah, because it, I mean, you can think of it as starting at CO2, getting converted to the organic constituents, and then ultimately coming back to the CO2. So yeah, photosynthesis and cellular respiration form the most basic cycle uh, within biogeochemistry. And so CO2 is just like such a hot topic these days being thought about, um, you know, with human release of CO2 in the atmosphere. But I kind of wanted to focus more in on CO2, carbon cycling, and just kind of what's actually happening in these systems, especially around Moab, to give people an idea of like, okay, so there's this big carbon cycle, we know humans are contributing to it, but it's also just occurring all around us. Right. So you talked about that plants are taking in CO2 and that it's being released uh, back into the atmosphere, but when you think about Moab, there aren't a ton of plants. I mean, there are plants there, obviously, but there aren't a ton. So how much carbon is being brought in, you know, generally speaking, in like a, in a place that doesn't have a lot of vegetation like Moab? Yeah, well, I, that's a, I think that's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, Moab is part of a spectrum of ecosystem types, or it's all part of a large biome type known as drylands, um, which, you know, maybe folks would used to have called deserts um, and drylands is kind of the new hot topic in, in a way drylands is kind of like a, a little bit better defined way of talking about ecosystems with particular climatic features moab the moab area is along that spectrum and i would classify it as kind of the semi-arid uh, type of an area it's got somewhere around 250 millimeters of rainfall per year um, which is dry but not insanely dry um, 
And, you know, one of the things that people have shown in looking at the amount of carbon that are in ecosystems, uh, the, you know, the wetter it gets, the more active the carbon cycle is, for sure, uh, like you were saying. Um, well, but why? Well, just so, more plants. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's basically the gist of it. Yeah, I mean, in the you know tropical rainforests will take up a huge, huge quantity. If of Moab carbon. gets a ton of rain, would it go faster there? Yeah, well, right, and that, that's kind of what I was uh, slowly moving towards. So one of the interesting things about semi-arid ecosystems is it's been shown that they have a huge year-to-year variability, and some of this variability shows up even at the global level. So, I mean, as most people know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is slowly rising every year. But it doesn't rise at the exact same rate every year. Um, Our fossil fuel burning is pretty consistent, so that part stays about the same each year. But there's a lot of natural variability. And one of the key, it turns out, one of the key drivers of that natural variability is semi-arid ecosystems, exactly like Moab. And so if you're there during a very wet year, you might notice, hey, all the grasses are going nuts this year. There's a lot of annual plants that are coming out. Um, When there's those big flushes of plant growth in areas that are normally a little bit more barren, they can bring in quite a bit of carbon. And you can see it at the global scale. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat. (laughs) I'm also thinking about Moab and the landscape that also has biological soil crusts, which are presumably doing something with carbon. Yeah, so the uh, one of the things that we were uh, examining uh, when I was working in Moab was the role that biological soil crusts play in contributing to photosynthesis, uh, you know, to that uptake of carbon uh, in the ecosystem. And, um, you know, it was pretty interesting. And I think, you know, there's a few studies out there suggesting that, that biological soil crusts or bio crusts can play a pretty big role in the uptake of carbon within the ecosystem. Um, I got to say, though, my personal opinion is that unless those crusts are really, really dramatic and huge and have a lot of components of things like mosses um, and maybe very well-developed lichens, I think the plants are still kicking their butts as far as photosynthesis. I think that the the plants are just so good at it. I mean, that's what they've evolved to do. That was their, you know, evolutionary adaptation was the ability to really um, grow leaves and photosynthesize at extremely fast rates. And really the only reason the biocrusts are surviving in areas like uh, dry air in dryland areas is that the plants um, don't have enough water to norm- do what they normally do. And so other organisms can kind of fill in those empty spaces between the plants. But I think that they're way worse at photosynthesizing um, overall. And I think in a lot of ecosystems, like it is really cool that the biocrust can break- take up carbon, but I don't think that they contribute a huge amount uh, numerically in a lot of cases. Now, I think there are people out there that would disagree with me, and I think, you know, it is an active area of debate, but that's my personal opinion, having stared at a lot of those numbers. <laughs> Even though the surface area is so much bigger than the plant surface area. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the thing that hasn't been done well so far, is really quantifying the exact amount of surface area. Um, but I think probably yes, because a lot of the surface area that's covered in crust is things like cyanobacteria. And like, you know, these are single cell organisms or filaments that consist of multiple single cell organisms. 
um, they are just not as adapted as something like a tree, which could have so much more leaf area, so much more chlorophyll um, within a particular space. So that's kind of my gut feeling on that. I could be proved wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit more about how a place like Moab loses carbon in this carbon cycle? So you've talked a lot about biocrest and plants taking in carbon. How does a dry place like Moab, where does that carbon cycle back? How does it cycle back through the system? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a good question. So the plants are bringing it, the plants and the biocrest are bringing it in through photosynthesis. Ultimately, that carbon is going to be lost by the process of respiration. Every single cell needs energy. And so every single cell of any organism, and we're talking about, you know, plants, animals, and uh, most especially uh, microbes or single cell organisms, they all need energy. And so they will break down things like sugars. Um, The ultimate byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. Um, And so, you know, one thing that um, a lot of people don't realize is that if you go to a soil that doesn't look like it has, like even just a patch of bare soil, and you stick uh, a chamber over it, you will see carbon dioxide coming out of that soil. And that's because the soil is alive and there are tons of microbes that are living down there and they're breaking down, you know, plant leaves, um, other microbes, uh, even animals that live in the soil. Anything that lives and dies in the soil will eventually be broken down. Ultimately, that's how the carbon will leave the ecosystem. Are they doing that when it's so dry? That's a good question. Um, what are the rates when the soils are really dry? As they are a lot of As the time. As they are a lot of the time. And like we showed in, in some of our measurements that the soils are really only wet enough to support, for example, the biocrust coming to life about 10% of the time. Um, that said, in semi-arid areas, the the soil's not always dry. I've looked at some of the, the time courses of you know, moisture, it doesn't just sit at zero all the time. It takes it a while to dry out after it rains. So it may be a little bit more than that, that there's enough water. Um, And also a lot of microbes who live in these areas are adapted to function at very low amounts of water in the soil, particularly things like fungi, which are thought to be, or increasingly thought to be an important part of desert soils. And so in thinking about the math, of, okay, so carbon's coming in and carbon's coming back out. Overall, across the year, and you mentioned it's going to vary from, you know, season to season, the amount of rain, would you say that, like, Moab, for example, or just drylands in general, are taking in more carbon or are losing more carbon, or does it balance out? That's an interesting question as well. There are um, some studies that have tried to compile that what we call a net flux so the total amount in versus the total amount out in a bunch of different dryland areas it does suggest that it is widely variable depending on the specific year and the specific dryland area that you're looking at one thing that has been shown if you look across a lot of different dry areas the drier you get the less overall stored carbon you have Um, in that dryland ecosystem. I mean, your plants are going to start to get reduced as it dries out, and um, your soils ultimately store less carbon as well. And by the way, the the soils are really the area where most carbon is is stored in most ecosystems. What do you mean by stored? How is the carbon hanging out down there? 
So when the carbon comes in via photosynthesis, um, it doesn't immediately get respired. It'll hang out in the ecosystem for a while. And sometimes that that while is 10,000 years. Oh, cool. It may, you may have a, a component of a plant that gets broken down. And actually what's thought to happen is that those plant constituents get broken down. They become part of the microbes that are living in the soil. Ultimately, the pieces of dead microbe that are in the soil are the things that stick around forever. And so not some soil ecologists call that the necromass. So the dead microbes that are in the soil, that necromass, the chemical compounds that are associated with that particular part of the soil can last for a very long time. In some areas, they will build up into huge pools. In dryland and desert areas, they don't build up into huge pools, but still some of it can hang out for, for quite a while in the soils. So interesting. So it sounds like it's pretty variable. Right. So ultimately... Um, if an area like Moab, you know, there are some forecasts suggesting that it is going to get hotter and drier in the southwestern United States. Moab's, you know, already pretty hot and dry, but it could get hotter and drier. I would, you know, make a pretty, I think, a pretty safe prediction that there's going to be ultimate loss of carbon from that area if it if it gets hotter and drier over time. How do things like land use change this carbon budget? Yeah, I mean, land use can have a huge impact on uh, carbon budgets. One, I mean, globally, one of the key factors in determining the atmospheric carbon concentration is deforestation of the tropics. When you do something like cut down a tropical forest, you release tons of carbon um, into the atmosphere. Now, you're not going to get as dramatic of an impact th through land use change in a uh, dry ecosystem that didn't have so much carbon in the trees and plants above ground to begin with. But nonetheless, any kind of land use can have an impact. Um, one thing that people have seen really recently is that um, as shrubs have increased in arid and semi-arid areas, which, by the way, a lot of people don't realize this, but it's a, it's a, a phenomenon that occurs all over the world. Um, woody shrub encroachment is what it's sometimes called. And as those shrubs expand in dry areas, um, they actually are relatively decent at locking up a little bit of extra carbon because they have those woody tissues. Um, like if you want to store carbon, the best thing to do is plant a forest. You know, in dry lands, forests don't grow very well because there's not enough water for them. But if you have shrubs that start to take over, they may lock up a little bit of extra carbon. Um, some initial studies that have been done suggest that as we get more shrubs, we are storing a little bit more carbon in, in dry areas. But presumably plowing, say you wanted to, or scrape clean the desert, right. a big tract of desert, you would presumably see a change in those carbon. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different land cover changes. I mean, you know, increase in woody shrubs is a big one. Um, but yeah, another good one to mention would be disturbance of the surface soil. And this is really where the, the biocrusts come in. If you go in and disturb a bunch of biocrusts, you are likely to lose carbon from that ecosystem. And the reason is that uh, the biocrust is great at stabilizing that surface of the soil, and it allows um, carbon that tends to build up in the very surface layers uh, to hang out there, to stay there. If you scrape away that protective layer, the topsoil will in many cases blow away. There are some very cool studies showing that uh, in the western United States over the last 100 years or so, the incidence of dust storms has gone up. Um, it's actually a very hard thing to document. 
um, but there's some neat data looking at uh, calcium concentrations in atmospheric uh, rainfall samples, for example, that show that that goes up over time. That's a hallmark of dust blowing around a lot more. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, because there's not really records of, like, you know, dust storms everywhere. Right. And so it, it's a very hard thing to track down. There's, you know, there's some studies that have used these sort of oblique ways to try to figure out that there are, in fact, more dust storms over time. That is almost certainly directly linked to this disturbance of the surface soil across dry areas. And, you know, areas like Phoenix or uh, where we live, where I'm living right now in El Paso, um, we have a lot of dust storms. I mean, people are very familiar with them. And interestingly, they probably didn't used to be as common if you were here a couple hundred years ago. So, yeah. And, you know, when that topsoil blows away, that particular ecosystem is going to lose some of its carbon, which is concentrated in those upper layers of the soil. Does Moab and Drylands have a lot of inorganic carbon in the soil? Yes, they do. <laughs> they do. Um, so that's another really interesting aspect of carbon cycling in drylands is that you have these huge calcium carbonate deposits in a lot of dry soils. What happens is in wetter soils, that stuff will get washed away. Um, and so calcium carbonate just... Yeah, calcium carbonate is just chalk. It's basically, you know, chalkboard chalk. It's the same substance. And, um, you know, you've seen it. If you've moved around in dry areas, you'll see these kind of white powdery uh, deposits that sometimes form on the surface of the soil. Or if you dig a hole, you might find a big chunk of it down below the surface. Um, those layers are known as caliche layers. Uh, they're very common in dry ecosystems. There's not enough water to kind of dissolve those and wash them away. So they build up um, in the soils. And, you know, if you see calcium carbonate in the soil, you know it's a pretty dry area. Interestingly, as you get drier and drier, you start to get compounds that are um, even more soluble building up in the soil. Um, so if you go to the Atacama Desert in, in Chile where there's you know, practically no rainfall, you see all sorts of bizarre compounds that build up. Uh, in that surface soil. Because they're just not getting washed yeah, away. Yeah, they don't get washed away. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in an area like Moab, um, it's really the, it's not that dry, so you don't get the, you know, more exotic minerals that form, but you do get calcium carbonate, and there's tons of it uh, down below the surface. Um, well, calcium carbonate contains carbon, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and it's a huge, I mean, that amount of, uh, you know, so calcium carbonate would be considered an inorganic carbon compound. The amount of it is massive. Um, if you go around the world and you add up all that carbon that's locked up in those carbonate layers, there's tons of it. Um, so it seems like something that could be really important. I think the jury's out on whether it's really, in fact, a huge player in the carbon cycle. Because you have to look at where that carbon was coming from in the first place and whether it's actually contributing to, for example, higher carbon in the atmosphere. And usually it's not, because the ultimate source of it is coming from rocks that already were locking up that carbon. Um, you know, there's chemical conversions that go in the soil. You get that layer that builds up, but it's more a reshuffling of calcium carbonate from things like limestone that were, was already hanging out. In order to, like, release a bunch of that carbon, you would need very particular conditions that don't tend to occur. Um, you need, like, a bunch of um, acid or something like that to come and break it down. Hope that yeah, and you got to wash away all the, the calcium. And so, you know, there are... I, I'm actually not the expert in all the chemistry of it. It gets very complicated very quickly. But, um, you know, in some places people have said, yes, these calcium carbonate deposits could be a big part 
of the total ecosystem balance of the carbon, but you know, it's not it's probably not quite as important as you would think just based on the amount of carbon that's in there. So there's a ton of it sitting there, but it's not necessarily a huge player, you know, in in lots of cases. Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. Um I'm curious what first got you interested in science and biogeochemistry. I got into research when I was an undergraduate. I just thought, you know, uh, science is a cool thing, and I was really into environment and outdoor type stuff. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Like, I can learn and do science at the same time as doing outdoor um, type activities. Um, that was how I kind of got into it. And I think the first project I did, I was looking at, it, w- it was actually a system where we were studying shrub encroachment in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California. And one part of that project was looking at the nitrogen cycling. And I just kind of got sucked in. I liked the nitrogen cycling stuff. And I, you know, as I read more about it, I started to understand this perspective where you could follow these immutable elements around and understand kind of the inner workings of the ecosystem. And I just got kind of captivated by that. Um, So that's kind of what sucked me in. And then I did a lot of nitrogen cycling stuff when I was um, a PhD student. You know, after that, I did more of the carbon cycling stuff as a uh, as a postdoc. And then, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? Oh man, I mean, there's lots of things I enjoy about being a scientist. I mean, I think for me, when it comes down to it, like I'm a person who just really likes learning things. Like I, I find it very enjoyable. Like I am totally the guy who will like. And my wife makes money with this. I, I I don't have as much time to do this anymore, but I would just sit around and read a textbook for fun uh, because you know. <laughs> I, I'm like, wow, there's all this knowledge in here. Like, I could, I could soak this up. This is, I mean, it's just something that motivates me as a person. Like, I like to learn stuff. Um, so, you know, science is definitely a way that I can continue to learn stuff every day. And in some cases, in some, you know, probably much more rarely than people think, but in some rare cases, generate a, a legitimately new piece of knowledge that people didn't know before. So that's really fun. I guess that's kind of like the the deeper personal reason, but um, you know, then as you do science, you realize it's a very social activity, and so you know, meeting all of the cast of characters that are in the world of science is, of course, um, you know, a huge um, joy and pleasure as well. I mean, it's one of the most fun things you get to meet all these um, you know like-minded individuals who also care about things like carbon and nitrogen cycling, um, and uh, you know you go to meetings and you see your colleagues that you've met over the years, and uh, you know it's it's a fun it's a fun community to be part of. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for this interview. It's been really cool to talk about all this stuff. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for uh, for doing it. It was fun. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.